G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the round eight preview episode and we've got a heap to give you today. A lot of news happening, which we'll discuss very shortly. Full previews of all nine games this week and some really big clashes looming. And then a trip down memory lane to revisit a couple of great old football memories. As I say, a very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How goes it, Fine? All well this end, Rowan. Uh, gee, as we said in the review edition, it was sort of redemption round last round in the AFL. It's going to make tipping very interesting come this round. Yes, well, it uh, never gets any easier, does it? How is our tipping going? I think I'm still a few ahead of you, aren't I? Yes, yeah, I'll try and rally. Season's not over yet. Okay, well, I'll tell you one organisation that never needs to rally because they are the top of the tree when it comes to nourishing, scrumptious, easily digestible and convenient food. Who would I be talking about? Well, no secrets here. The best burgers, the very highest quality, and of course, 80 plus years record producing these great burgers, Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. I could go one now, and it's only early in the morning, Rowan, but throw an egg in it, and I'd be happily eating a, but what would we call it, a breakfast burger? Doesn't matter. One with the lot there any time of the day. Well, you can get a breakfast burger at a uh, well-known fast food establishment, but uh, if you get a chance, hop into one of these babies instead. They've got burgers for every time of the day and every occasion. In fact, I know someone who got married recently and they got Andrew's hamburgers to do the catering. No, they didn't. I just completely made that up. Stupid of me to do it. Uh, I'll tell you what else is a fine establishment in the uh, southeastern suburbs or thereabouts, Finey, and uh, we're talking home renovations. West Point Properties, Nick's Bartels and the team, they are renovators to the stars, especially footballers. Think Dyson Heppel, Scott Penderbury, Mike Sheehan. You've got Goose Maguire, the former Saint Lion on the tools. Luke Ball worked there. No lack of football connection. and. No lack of quality. West Point Properties, Nick Spartels. I know Goose Maguire has worked there. Has Moose Maguire worked there? Who's Moose Maguire? Well, he's the man I mistook Goose Maguire for one infamous post game <laughs> back in the day. It's about the sixth time I've gone with that gag. Never gets old. I'll tell you another fine organisation who we're proud to be associated with, and that is Stats Insider a sports and data-driven industry leader providing model projections and analysis for more than 15 sports across the world. They simulate an event 10,000 times. Yep, you heard me, 10,000 times to best understand both the range and possible outcomes and probability of each result. 
Along with their famed pre-match and in-game projections, Stats Insider is also known for its full-season forecasting, the likes of which is now telling us that there are five premiership favourites. The probability of winning the flag for whom is split by just 2.7%. It's tight at the top. Stats Insider is also home to some of Australia's best independent sports writing and analysis. Everything's free to use on the site, so check them out at statsinsider.com.au and give them a follow on Twitter too, at Stats Insider. All right, enough of the plugs. We've got a heap to get through. Let's do it. On Footyology Newsfeed. Well, I think we should probably lead off with uh, what was a very serious incident last weekend in the VFL, Finey, and it was Paddy McCartan's strike on Aaron Black, um, VFL Geelong VFL captain, in fact. Uh, Paddy now playing for Sydney in the uh, newly designed VFL competition. Um, some video footage emerged of uh, a really ugh, unpleasant looking off the ball strike. And uh, Paddy McCartan paid a penalty. Some were suggesting wasn't a stiff enough penalty of five games. He uh, should, we should say, he's issued a pretty abject apology uh, for his behaviour. Also, uh, some interesting discussion about how he's, uh, he, of course, is a diabetic. His blood sugar levels had been very low. And uh, according to Paddy McCartan, Aaron Black said something to the effect of him sweating up and being unfit, which he didn't respond well to, and clocked him. Um, pretty unsavoury stuff, Finey. What did you make of it all? Yeah, I mean, the footage was distant but very clear. He took one swing and missed and then collected with the next. Fortunately, even though there was swelling to Aaron Black's jaw, there wasn't any long-term damage. I think that might have saved Paddy a few weeks extra on the sidelines. Yeah, I think he might have got off pretty lightly when you consider not only... It's funny, it's not funny, it's... It is, in a sense, ironic that a player that has probably been the most celebrated and dramatic case of football concussions' latest protocols, striking somebody to the head so savagely, and we now know that there is absolutely no tolerance for such behaviour, I would have thought five weeks is the bare minimum. To be honest, I expected eight weeks. Yeah, it does seem, for what it was in, in the context of what we see today, it does seem uh, somewhat lenient. It seems strange to be talking about five weeks as lenient, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty ugly stuff. I'll tell you one thing, whenever I read something about Paddy McCartan, inevitably there's background about his issues with concussion. He suffered eight separate concussions playing for St Kilda. Eight. Yeah, I, I just, you know, you can't help but wonder about the wisdom of him and absolutely understand him trying to revive his career. But, uh, gee, I don't know. I wonder if um, I wonder if he might reconsider in the light of this. Uh, and I, I guess people are also wondering, you know, do things like that sort of impact on a player's demeanour on the field? Well, he 
has given his reasons why he was so erratic in his behaviour, citing his low sugar count with diabetes. But let's just call it the sort of build up the stress that has been associated with his career. And hopefully, if he does continue on, two things happen that we don't see any more concussion incidents with Paddy McCartan and that the, the the valve has been released. The kettle has blown and the steam has shot out and there's no more stress related with his football that manifests itself in hitting an opponent. Well, one career that has come to an end and rather suddenly is uh, the tenure of AFL umpires coach Hayden Kennedy, who uh, rather suddenly announced his departure from that role yesterday, uh, yesterday being Tuesday, uh, tearfully announced that uh, news to his umpiring colleagues at training last night. Um, I don't know. I mean, people will want to read stuff into this. I did see family reasons cited somewhere as the explanation. It's a bit of speculation in one of the reports on his resignation today about um, a supposed fracturing of the relationship between AFL footy operations boss Steve Hocking and the umpiring fraternity over uh, not just the new rules, but the load, decision-making load that they now uh, have on them and how workable that is. So there undoubtedly be a bit of speculation. It's interesting, though, he's been in the role a long time. This was his, I think, eighth season in the role. Uh, lovely guy, Hayden. One of the most experienced people in umpiring. Uh, debuted as a field umpire in 1988. Umpired 495 games, including five grand finals. Retired in 2011. Uh, switched over immediately to uh, umpiring administration and took on the umpire coaching role or head coaching role in 2014. Uh, I don't know, do you think we should put two and two together and speculate that uh, maybe there's more than meets the eye to this one? Absolutely. <laughs> Just that record that you read out, his longevity in the game doesn't lead one to think that he's the sort of person that would leave a coaching position mid-term, certainly not mid-season. And... Yes, um, look, family reasons, if there are pressing family reasons, that would be one reason why you wouldn't complete a season in such an important position or, of course, maybe conflict within the role. So until we know further details, uh, I guess we shouldn't speculate, but something sudden and momentous has occurred for the likes of Hayden Kennedy to walk out mid-season. That seems strange, particularly strange timing. Um, and you would have thought if it was something sort of dramatic on the family front, we would have heard something about it. So uh, stay tuned, I'd suggest. There may be more that uh, you hear about that. Um, speaking about speculation, that's what the, the media does. Um, and a lot of contract speculation sort of coming up this week. Uh, and a couple of, you know, you've got to pick through the week with the from the chaff with a lot of these contract stories, but a couple of interesting ones. Number least, Christian Petrarca uh, suggestion last night on the news that uh, he is on the verge of signing a long-term seven-year deal 
with the Demons on a reasonably sized $900,000 per year. Uh, he's still contracted for another couple of years in his current deal. He's 25 at the moment, so I'd suggest a seven-year deal has to take in those two years, surely, because otherwise it takes him up to 32. Um, a lot of interest from Collingwood, Finey. Uh, he's due to become a free agent at the end of 2022. Uh, the Magpies said to be very interested in acquiring his services, as you would be. He's certainly in the top handful of players in the game. So a bit of a coup for Melbourne if they can hang on to him and uh, make him a, 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 what do they call it, a lifetime Melbourne player. Uh, on the other hand, we've seen a few of these longer-term deals go a bit uh, haywire. Well, perfect timing, really, for Melbourne to initiate extending his contract when you're 7-0, and sitting on top of the AFL ladder, as Melbourne have rarely been in that position in our lifetimes. Uh, it's a great time to re-sign a player. Everything's looking rosy at Melbourne. He's sort of career best form, Brownlow medal favourite. And yeah, I'm sure they'll get the job done. Interesting that Collingwood would be his suitor. This is Collingwood that had enormous salary cap problems at the end of last season, indicated to the football world that they were clearing out some of the top heavy contracts to allow young players to come through the club. The next day costs is expected and obviously allow for the contractual um, requirements for some young talent at the club and go to the draft and really redefine themselves as a club, now put themselves up for Christian Petrarca. Yeah, very strange indeed. And let's not forget that they themselves, you talked about multi-year deals, they themselves are currently at the very beginning of one that looks to be probably the greatest poison chalice in football. When you consider that on the weekend, Brody Grundy was humbled by, what, Gold Coast's third string ruckman or fourth string ruckman, he's six weeks or seven weeks into a seven-year deal, a multi-million dollar deal, and he's only seven weeks into it. So you'd think they would be one team shying away from such long deals. Yeah, well, I guess on that theme, uh, the other thing it makes me think of is, uh, you know, would a player, a uh, much touted sort of star of the future for them in Jordan Degoe, uh, if they're prepared to toss around the idea of getting Christian Petrarca on board, uh, how safe would someone like Jordan Degoe be? Well, it wouldn't be that safe, given that the word out of the game against the Gold Coast, that loss to the Gold Coast, were that his teammates were on his case about the lack of commitment and lack of tackling pressure up in the forward half. I think he only laid one tackle for the afternoon. So he's got to win over his teammates. And, yeah, his neck would be on the chopping block if they were to sign a big-name player. I reckon he'd be the first to go. Well, the other uh, interesting contract story around actually concerns AFLW, and uh, that's been written by Mark Robinson in the Herald Sun. Um, and it's about Taylor Harris, one of the, uh, I guess, best-known names in the women's game. But uh, she's reportedly asking for a new deal from the Blues of, uh, in the order of $150,000 a year. Now, 
in the women's game, just to put that into perspective, um, she's currently reportedly being paid about 80000 or did get paid about 80000 this year. She's classified as a Tier 2 player, uh, which gives her $25,000 in uh, match payments, and then that's supplemented by marketing and uh, other employment roles with the club. So uh, almost a 100% increase on what she earned this year. And you'd have to say her performance this year didn't really merit a rise of that sort. She didn't finish in the top 15 in the club best and fairest, really struggled. Um, and I've got to say, like a lot of people, I think uh, when I read this story, I immediately started thinking about uh, Moana Hope. Um, it just seems interesting that a couple of the most instantly recognisable faces of AFLW um, have really begun to struggle as the competition has grown and younger players who have had the benefits of, I guess, more professional development have emerged. So um, I don't know where that one sits, but uh, it's certainly a watch this space job on that one. She, her um, AFLW future might be in a bit of strife unless she can moderate those demands a bit. There's a few things out of this story, aren't there, Rowan? I mean, those that demand really only comes on the back of the marketing and external financial deals that can be sorted out around Taylor Harris. I mean, as a Tier 2 player, $25,000 as her playing salary... We really do have an enormous inequality here between what the men get paid and the females get paid. And I think we need to start to look to bridging that gap. $25,000 seems a fairly paltry amount for an AFLW season, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the season will continue to expand in terms of length. So you'd assume that those figures are going to climb. The other point of interest here and this is something that piques my interest is and you can help me out because this is absolutely in your bailiwick how Robbo gets a story like that I mean is it investigative journalism I wouldn't have thought that Robbo's sort of scouring AFLW post-season for stories is this one of those occasions where somebody from the Carlton Football Club has made contact with Robbo and given him all the information and said, we want this to go public? Uh, I think he could be reasonably confident that would be the case. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be in the interests uh, of Taylor Harris's management to leak that story. Uh, far more in the interests of a club that uh, is really balking at those sort of demands and wants to bring it to a head. And, and please don't anyone interpret that as a slight on Robbo. That's... Uh, that's how you get good news stories by developing a rapport and developing a reputation and having people leak information to you because they know it'll be widely read and disseminated. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be pretty confident that story has come from club sources rather than from Taylor Harris's side. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting how these things happen. Do you, what, do you just get a phone call or, or well, it's a simple yeah. as that? No, that's generally how it works. Um, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, look, uh, i got to say as a journalist, uh, you know, breaking news was, wasn't was really what I 
concentrated on for much of my career, but uh, there are those occasions when one gets dropped in your lap and you feel um, reasonably excited and privileged to be the recipient of that. Uh, I don't know why, I just had a flashback to one day when I was on the Sun News Pictorial near the Herald Sun. This is in 1986. And um, Essendon was starting to struggle after two premierships in a row. And uh, one Friday afternoon, um, I get a phone call from the front desk saying, Kevin Sheedy has just left you a videotape. And I said, oh, okay. So I went down and picked it up. Uh, a beta videotape, of course. This was mid-80s. And uh, stuck it. I'm lucky we had a, a VCR in the office then, but uh, stuck in the VCR. And it was a, a carefully compiled uh, montage of a whole lot of Essendon players getting belted around the head. Uh, he'd left a note on it saying, ring me after you've watched it. So I rang him and he absolutely teed off saying that uh, we've had enough of uh, uh, of getting belted and we're going to fight back. This was on the <laughs> eve of a, a big um, Collingwood-Essendon game, which was, you know, probably season-defining for the Bombers. And uh, so it was a massive story for us to run on a Saturday morning. Um, the sub-editors put the headline on it, Sheedy cries foul, which I didn't sort of, you know, interpret too badly. That's basically what he'd done. but. Um, uh, who can count on Kevin Sheedy? Uh, anyway, Sheeds was absolutely filthy about the headline <laughs> and um, uh, didn't deal with me for about two years after that. Anyway, we sorted it out in the end, but um, that's how those things work. Anyway, Taylor Harris, interesting story, certainly one to keep your eye on, even in the uh, what is the off-season for AFLW. All right, that's enough news. Uh, we've got some big games coming up in round eight. Let's preview them. On Footyology, previews with Punch. First game on the card, and it is a cracker. A grand final rematch on Friday evening at the MCG, where last year's grand final should have been played, obviously. It is between Richmond and Geelong, 7.50pm. Should be a rip snorter. Uh Tigers having uh, reasserted themselves with a good win last week against the Bulldogs. The Cats going down in a heartbreaker against Sydney at the SCG. Uh, what are Stats Insider tell us about this game? Well, the Tigers have won six of their last seven games against the Cats. Yet, in five of those seven games, the Cats have actually won the disposal count. They are a high-possession football team. Speaking of Geelong blowing opportunities, before last week's loss, teams were 21-0 when they'd had at least a 13-plus inside 50 differential edge in matches this season. The Cats had a 26-positive differential on the inside 50 count against Sydney last week and still lost. In fact, they smashed the Swans for contested ball. They smashed them for uncontested ball. I think I saw a a stat from uh, Champion Data. It was one of the most pronounced statistical edges ever recorded in a game um, with the side subsequently losing. So certainly for Geelong, the one that got away, this one is a tougher test still, Fanny. What are either of these teams thinking about selection-wise? Well, there's a couple of forced changes at the Tigers with good ends to replace them. Trent Coxon out with that hamstring injury. 
and Dylan Grimes out with the concussion protocol. So they're big outs, but equally big ins as concussion protocol opens the door for Dustin Martin to come back in and a long-awaited return for Nick Floston. So big outs, big ins. At Geelong, Grian Myers has a hairline fracture to the tibula and he will be at, or fibula, I should say. <laughs> I combine tibia and fibula there. It's the fibula. And he's out. Um, expect him to be replaced maybe by Charlie Constable. And do they go with out-of-form Reese Stanley? I reckon he might be on the outer and an opportunity possibly for Darcy Fort to come into the team, even Josh Jenkins. So have a look closely at selection to see which one of those players, if either, replaces Reese Stanley. As for the game, boy, those statistical numbers, you'd almost back along against anybody this week, knowing that they got the numbers right, they just didn't get the final result right. And that would be burning deep, except that they're playing their absolute nemesis at the wrong ground. And we talk about the Tigers at the MCG. Now, whether it's last year's grand final, which was at the Gabba, or the year before the preliminary final at the MCG, the problem for the Cats when they take on the Tigers is no lead seems too safe for them. Geelong against Richmond are really the sort of classical hunt down prey and Richmond seem to relish playing against the Cats. They'll want to, as they did against the Bulldogs, impose themselves on the season. The outs are big, but the ins replace them. So for mine, Richmond by 21 points. Yeah, this is uh, interesting. You mentioned the Ruck. I think the Ruck's particularly interesting because um, my memory is that Toby Nankervis has been a, a consistently good player for the Tigers against Geelong, and he's certainly in good form at the moment. Thought he was really good last week. He's been a, pre- a real strong presence for them all season and uh, not only around the ground, which is his forte, but uh, starting to sort of carry himself better in terms of the hit outs and actual technical ruck work as well. So that's a, a big decision for the Cats. Can, I can't go past the head-to-head record for this one. Uh, it's not only the fact that Richmond have beaten Geelong six of the last seven times, it's the fact that three of them have been in finals. Of course, the qualifying final in 2017, I guess the the game which launched Richmond as a super team, uh, the preliminary final 2019, then of course last year's grand final. And uh, most of the wins, uh, they only won, one of them they only won by three points, but most of them have in the end been by three goals or more. So uh, they seem to, yeah, Geelong seems to get a start. Richmond seems to wear them down and then just roll right over the top of them. And I don't think Rich, I don't think Richmond's the sort of side that, generally speaking, gets into a vein of form and then uh, sort of, you know, goes back on that the following week. Uh, that's not how they roll, I don't reckon. And uh, there was something pretty ominous about the way they dismissed that challenge from the Western Bulldogs last week. So I can see a similar thing happening. The Cats, um, you know, keeping pace with or maybe even being in front of the Tigers early and and Richmond just uh, eventually wearing them down and coming over the top. So I'm going for the Tigers too. Uh, Margin, I reckon, you know, I'll I'll 
go about the same sort of margin uh, some of those previous wins have been. I'm going for Richmond by 18 points. All right, big grand final rematch kicks off round eight. Let's have a look at Saturday. Saturday afternoon at Giant Stadium, 1.45pm, GWS taking on Essendon. The Giants playing some uh, pretty good footy now, beat up on Adelaide in Adelaide last week. Essendon going down against bitter rival Carlton by 16 points in a pretty entertaining and free-flowing game, one in which their kids perform particularly well. Stats Insider tells us on this one that Jesse Hogan has the potential to transform the GWS forward line. Against Adelaide, uh, the Giants hold in a mark inside 50 on 24% of their entries, an area they came into the game ranked only 17th in the league for. And speaking of marks inside 50, Hogan, Himmelberg and Toby Green combined for 10 marks inside 50 over the weekend. That alone was a bigger number than what eight individual clubs amassed in round seven. So things starting to tick over up forward for the Giants. Uh, what are either side considering selection-wise, Finey? A couple more injuries for the Giants, um, and they are Daniels and Bunteen, so they need to be replaced. Unfortunately, Bunteen was the sub, and he himself got injured. So into the side... I think Nick Shipley might get a call-up. Connor Stone, who was omitted, could get called up. And Jake Riccardi had a fantastic game playing in defence. So whether there's a job there for Jake Riccardi, that's interesting, isn't it? He had something like 19 marks, 40 possessions. And we know a lot of that is trip around, but apparently played very well as a defender. So that's a close look. As for Essendon, Aaron Francis is available. And I reckon he comes into the side for James Stewart. Also, just have a check at selection whether or not Patrick Ambrose can force his way back into the team. He's been playing in the VFL now for a couple of weeks, three weeks, I think, and certainly fit enough to be in the team. Is there a spot for him? One interesting thing to keep an eye on is Ben Rutten's take on David Zaharakis, who's really been sort of set in the role as medical sub. He has come on once, of course. But I've got a feeling Ben Rutten's not all that keen on having David Zaharakis in his best 22, and that means the clock's ticking on the career of the Essendon veteran. As far as the game is concerned, well, GWS Giants have defied early season prognostications to really become a competitive outfit and can again look to press for a position in the eighth. Though this year, if they make the finals, that would be a result full of merit because it's a young team. In fact, we know that the side that took on the Bulldogs a couple of weeks ago was the youngest and least experienced side fielded in the AFL this year. So kudos to them for persisting with young players and getting a good result out of it. Toby Green, very comfortable in his role as captain in the absence of Canilio. And last week, in their crushing win over Adelaide, I thought the best game of the season so far for Josh Kelly. So he too is returning to best form. Hopper playing well. Taranto continues to impress in the midfield. And a back line that may not be as glamorous as it once was, without Williams, with Haynes out injured, no Heath Shaw, but certainly getting the job done. 
Essendon, a little disappointing last week against Carlton, though some optimism with their young players again advancing strides. And Nick Bryan added to the mix, the young Ruckman. He'll find it tough if he's got to take on Mummy. There's two players at different stages of their careers and of their body development. GWS for mine by 33. Yeah, I'm not sure they're going to win by that much. Um, some interesting selection possibilities for us. And Nick Cox, some speculation they might give him a bit of a rest. He's played every game, copped a bit of a knock late last week. James Stewart came back last week, was really good early, I thought. Harry Mackay got on top of him. Eventually, I think that is the worry for Essendon. It's um, their defence isn't strong enough and big enough against a more capable forward setup. And uh, look, only Jesse Hogan's first game back for the Giants, but uh, kick four looked pretty good. Harry Himmelberg's playing some good footy, so uh, that'll be a handful for Essendon to counter. Record-wise, um, they, they've tended to split their last few clashes. Uh, the last four have been split two apiece. Um, Essendon's record at the GWS home isn't terrific, but they have won a few in the early days when everyone was beating the Giants. Look, I, I just think the Giants uh, are a more seasoned outfit across the board. They are playing some pretty consistent footy now. In fact, if you take their last four weeks... 16 quarters. They probably played uh, 15 pretty decent ones. Um, I think Essendon will give them plenty of uh, curry. I don't know why I thought of curry, but um, they'll they'll uh, keep things interesting for the majority of this game, I think. But I can see the Giants breaking free in the end and having uh, a narrowish sort of win. I'm going for GWS by 10 points in this one. Second game on Saturday afternoon. Let's talk about that. A little bit later than that first game comes the second game on Saturday. 2.10pm, a more traditional starting time at Metricon Stadium. Gold Coast taking on St Kilda. Stats Insider say for this one, their match model is struggling to split these two teams and is currently forecasting a one-point win to the Suns, and they have had some close shaves, these two. Speaking of the Suns, they have the best tackle inside 50 to opposition rebound 50 ratio in the AFL currently, while well, only Essendon is faring better than the Suns' positive 7.9 total tackle differential number. Along with Essendon, the Suns are the only team to have won the tackle count in each and every game this season and uh, a particularly good win for them against Collingwood at the MCG last week. Ditto St Kilda, though, uh, beating up on Hawthorne. Pretty impressive bounce back by the Saints. I wonder if they'll consider any changes after that one, Finey. Well, this will be, I think, one of those rare games where both teams go in unchanged, having enjoyed big wins the previous week. St Kilda certainly looked so much better, so much more like the 2020 outfit with the return of Paddy Ryder. That combination of Paddy Ryder and Rowan Marshall in the ruck is, I think, almost the strongest one-two punch in the AFL as far as rucking is concerned. Whereas, because of injuries to Jared Witts and probably Zach Smith not pressing his case strongly enough in the VFL, 
the Gold Coast Suns have had to go with a less heralded rucking lineup. We know that Graham's done his work and uh, Josh Corbett rucks when the ball's up forward. Look, they have done fantastically well in the last two weeks. In fact, they didn't make any change for the game against Collingwood, and I don't think they'll make any change this game. The midfield is working incredibly hard getting back to support that defence and forward line, keeping the ball in the forward line and helping out defenders. Tuke Miller, he's a running machine, highly underrated. Anderson is in his second season but continues to impress. And all around the ground, it's their numbers that have been so impressive. In fact, their football against Collingwood and against Sydney, high possession, retaining the ball, but also high numbers at the contest, was exactly the sort of football that Port Adelaide played that embarrassed St Kilda a fortnight ago. So it's a vastly different story for the Saints, who performed well against Hawthorne, to go up to the Gold Coast and get a positive result. I've got to say, with Corbett now a target up forward and Ben King playing as well as his brother Max at least, I lean towards the Gold Coast Suns, and that's where I'm putting my tip. Gold Coast by nine points. Gee, I, I'm really struggling to come up with a tip for this one. I reckon there's arguments for both sides. I did mention they've had some pretty close shaves. Well, uh, St Kilda have actually won the last five straight in this matchup. Uh, the last four of them, though, combined aggregate margin of 11 points. Four yeah. points, four points, one point and two points. So uh, the Saints have got over the line just by kick the last four times they've met. Uh, it be interesting to see if that provides any sort of motivational fodder for Gold Coast coach Stuart Jew. I'm still tossing up my selection as I'm talking now. I just don't know which way to go. Do I show faith in St Kilda? They were very impressive the way they dismissed Hawthorne, but Gold Coast win... Uh, yeah, look, you've got to give them some credit for that. I think that deserves certainly tipping them for their next game, particularly one being played at home. Always a difficult place to win, no matter how the Suns are playing. So, yep, like you, Fonny, I'm going to go for Gold Coast here, but by the narrowest of margins. Well, no, it's not the narrowest of margins. Nearly narrowest of margins. I'm going for Gold Coast by two points. All right, that is Saturday. Let's talk about Saturday Twilight. Saturday Twilight, Marvel Stadium, 4.35pm. And is this a potential wooden spoon playoff? Well, uh, I might be a little facetious there, but the fact is, if you look at the ladder at the moment, these are the bottom two sides. I'm speaking, of course, about North Melbourne. Still winless after seven rounds, although playing... A lot better footy of late. Collingwood in 17th spot on the ladder. A miserable 1-6. All sorts of speculation swirling around the coach and the future of a lot of players on that list. What does Stats Insider say about this one? Well, it's the battle of the league's two worst disposal differential outfits, both getting massacred in uncontested possessions this season each allowing opponents at least 250 uncontested possessions per game. On a positive note, North's South Australian rookie Tom Powell is ranked top seven at both the Roos and among all AFL rookies in disposals, inside 50s, clearances and tackles, 
while doing all of that with just 79% time on ground. It's only a matter of time before he receives a Rising Star nomination. That would be at least something positive going on at North Melbourne. That said, they are playing some pretty good footy. Push Melbourne for much of last week's clash down in Hobart. What will they and the Pies be considering its selection, Finey? Yeah, I mean, for Collingwood, it's become a little bit of a revolving door with the likes of Brayton Sear, Jack Magden, possibly coming back into the team, having played well in the VFL. Reef McInnes is a chance to make his debut as well, or at least get uh, uh, another Essen, another Collingwood debutante on the paper. They've already had quite a few this season. They've, I think, had five debutantes. He could be number six. Tom Wilson, another possible debutant for the Pies. Not exactly names rolling off the tongue. In danger, Finn McRae, the brother of Jack McRae, very quiet last week. And Mark Keane could be under pressure because I think it's almost a lay-down Mazair that Darcy Moore returns to the back line after an unsuccessful foray forward. As for North Melbourne, they'd be pretty happy with their performance. Could almost go in unchanged, depending on the fitness of Aidan Bonner. If he's unavailable, maybe Dom Tyson, who played pretty well for North Melbourne in a VFL side that is struggling probably even more so than their senior team. Well, North Melbourne versus Collingwood. Some would point to this as North Melbourne's best chance to win a game, at least for the next few weeks and for most of the season. So poor have been Collingwood in the last few weeks. It's hard to tip North Melbourne, Rowan. As much as they have been improved and the performance against Melbourne was full of merit, Larkey looking a little bit better up forward and certainly the form of Cunnington carried their team a long way against the Demons. Surely Collingwood can shake off the malaise long enough to beat North Melbourne. The forward line has not been functional, but Jordan Degoe will get plenty of opportunities to right the wrongs, and he's been under pressure this week and tends to respond to that sort of pressure. They've still got quality through the midfield with Pendlebury. Side bottom being down a bit, a chance for him to improve. Maybe it comes down to the ruck battle between a couple of war horses in Grundy and Goldstein. Goldstein just hanging on, I reckon, at the moment. Not When I say just hanging on, he's just sort of playing in a defensive role against the opposition Ruckman, not really taking the game on and getting forward and kicking goals as he did so well last season at times. Now, I'm going to have to stick my neck out, say Collingwood surely can't lose to North Melbourne and tip them by 17 points. Well, this is one of those games where uh, if you were trying to make up some tips, uh, it'll almost be worth girding your wounds and tipping the ruse. And I reckon a few people probably will. I'm not one of them, though. I think uh, look, Collingwood have to find something this week. They've got uh, a heap more experience across the board than the ruse. And uh, maybe that fear of what will happen, because it'll be... It'll be carnage. It'll be uh, back to the days of 1976 and the coach fighting with the president. I'm not saying that'll happen, but the uh, publicity ensuing from a Collingwood loss can't even begin to imagine it. They just simply cannot afford to lose this game. 
And because of that, I don't think they will lose this game. I don't think they'll win it by a lot, though. I'm going to go for the Magpies by 16 points. Saturday evening at the MCG, it's the Battle of the Capital Cities. It is Melbourne taking on Sydney. And a really intriguing clash, this one. The Demons, of course, undefeated on top of the ladder. Rare territory indeed for the Melbourne Football Club in recent times. And Sydney having a fantastic season too. Far, far better than what most people expected, except those of us who tipped them in the eight. And a terrific win for the Swans last week against Geelong on their own home deck. This will be tougher, though, given the brand of footy Melbourne are playing. Stats Insider tells us, according to their season projections, Melbourne is the league's most surefire finalist now. 95% probability that they will be playing finals, while their 76.5% top four probability is also the strongest percentage of any side in the competition. There's so many areas where the Demons are excelling this season. Something that's standing out, though, is they appear to be getting stronger within games. Very good sign for a team that hasn't often been known to be overly resilient. They still haven't lost a fourth quarter this season, posting a 207.6 percentage in the process, nor have they lost a single second half. So they're starting well, but they are finishing even better, the Demons. But they've got their work cut out for them because these Swans, they won't quit. The youngsters have been impressive. In recent weeks, it's been the older guys leading the way and they've played some good, tough footy to go with that attacking, free-flowing stuff they wheeled out in the first month of a season. What are either of these teams considering on the selection front, Finey? Well, Melbourne can't consider Jack Viney still. He went out last week as a late withdrawal with a injured toe. He's going to miss for a couple more weeks. But they can now bring Sam Wiedemann into the team via the following route. And that is the unfortunate season-ending ACL injury to Adam Tomlinson opens the door for Tom McDonald to go back permanently as the third defender. We know that they like using May and Lever in intercepting roles, which means that McDonald will be given more of a lockdown role as a third defender. And that opens the door for Wiedemann to come in as the second tall forward. So we are going to see Wiedemann and Brown in tandem for the first time in the AFL. James Harms has played one game in the VFL and he's normally a regular in the senior side, though the late inclusion, Oscar Baker, played very well last week. So we'll wait to see whether or not there's any changes made there. Nathan Jones also came on early as a sub and played well in uh, his role as a midfielder. So interesting to see how the deck shares are moved on that one. As for Sydney, big names coming back. Lance Franklin is said to be available, as is Dane Rampey, as is George Hewitt from Concussion Protocol. Who misses out? Melican has uh, injured his hamstring. He's a definite miss. And then one of the tall forwards. Now, that means probably either Hayden McLean or Callum Sinclair. Both would be unlucky to miss out. Sinclair, working in tandem in the ruck with Hickey, actually was responsible for the win. Because if you have a look at Sydney's two goals that got them over the line, kicked by Rowbottom and by Rampey, 
you'll see that the provider on both occasions was Callum Sinclair, but he misses out. So unlucky for him. And Callum O'Reardon would be another one unlucky to miss out, but likely to make way for Hewitt. Cracking game, this one. Don't forget what Sydney did last time they visited the MCG. They made quick work of the Tigers. In fact, that game from pillar to post was a Sydney Swan domination. Melbourne got into a little bit of um, a funk against North Melbourne and looked pretty poor for the first half and finally snapped out of it. And I guess like a good team as they are, 7-0 and on the ladder, found their better selves, got the victory. Max Gorn, not his best self, comes up against Tom Hickey, could be leading in the Brownlow after that unexpected return from the PCL injury. What a clash that is. Could be decided right there and then. Midfields bristle with talent. Kennedy and Parker playing well for the Swans, lead their much younger brigade with some good players now running through the midfield for the Swans. And we know that Melbourne's inside mids are unbeatable at the moment, led by Clayton Oliver. Brayshaw played well, playing well. And, of course, Petrarca, man of the moment with his contract talks. Should be a great game all around the ground. Two powerful forward lines, capable back lines. I'm going for the upset, I guess. But I was there when Sydney beat Richmond at the G and I can't get that memory out of my mind. Sydney by seven points. Yeah, look, I'm really looking forward to this game. I reckon it should be really entertaining above and beyond everything else. There's some really interesting stats around it too. You mentioned Sydney on the MCG. Their record on the G of late has been terrific. In fact, they've won four of their last five appearances there, including that win over Richmond a few weeks back. And the one loss uh, came a couple of years ago against Essendon. That was by only 10 points. So their record on the G is pretty good. The other... This is quite an amazing stat, I reckon. I've just uh, done the number crunching then. You know how some teams don't play each other very often? Surely these two have played the least of any matchup in the competition in the modern era, I would suggest. Over the last 14 seasons, you know how many times these two have played? 14. Yeah. That is insane. It's well, basic. Bare minimum. It has basically been one game a year since 2008. Of course, their last clash was up in Cairns and that produced one of Sydney's uh, best wins for the 2020 season. Uh, in fact, that was probably the first moment I looked at them and thought, gee, I reckon this side is going to come with a bit of a rush. The other encouraging thing for the Swans is their overall record against Melbourne is outstanding. In fact, of the last 17 clashes between these two teams... Sydney have won 15 of them. So uh, you've got every right to be tipping the Swans in this one. I reckon this will be a great game, but I'm not prepared to tip against a team which is undefeated. Okay, they've got to lose sometime, but I, I think they're still playing good enough footy to justify going with them again. Again, I think it's going to be very, very close, though. I am going for the Demons to win this one by six points. That's one of the Saturday night games. Let's talk about the other one. There's going to be a showdown. Do you remember that song by the Johnnies, Fanny? No. There's going to be a showdown. Well, there is going to be a showdown. Uh, this one between Port Adelaide and Adelaide at Adelaide Oval, Saturday evening, 
7.40pm Eastern Standard Time. Always a big occasion on the calendar. They can speak of nothing else in Adelaide in the lead-up to it. Stats Insider is speaking about the following. Port have won all 12 of their matches against bottom eight opposition since the start of 2020, while in that same time span, Adelaide is 1-9 against top eight foes. Not encouraging for the Crows. That was just the second game Travis Boak has missed in seven years last week. And while Port still won the disposal and inside 50 count, it did lose the clearance and tackle count. In fact, that was just the third time in Port's last 34 games that they've been beaten in both tackles and clearances. And while it was only narrow, that's a real testament to the Brownlow medal runner-up. Travis Boak is critical to them, Finally, Will he be playing? Yep, Boak is back, according to all reports. And I think probably Ken Hinckley will give them sort of one... One night off, that game against Brisbane was subpar, but I don't think there'll be any omissions other than Woodcock for Boak. As for Adelaide, the axe could swing. Look, there's a couple of players certainly under pressure. Most likely to be in the gun would be Sam Berry, James Rowe, the lively forward, not hitting the scoreboard in recent weeks. And I think those two could be in trouble. Josh Worrell looking for a return to the senior lineup, and Darcy Fogarty, who was unused as a medical sub. I just think he, look, I know that he probably doesn't get the ball enough when he's forward. They tried him in the midfield a bit, but they need more potency up forward. And I just think that they're sort of compelled to play Fogarty. And that's really now where things are faltering for the Adelaide Crows. Great start to the season, but it is becoming a little bit unhinged as Taylor Walker's red-hot start now goes back to... He's a contributor, don't get me wrong, but not the sort of start that he had to the season. So fives and sixes being replaced by a couple of goals a game. And that's a bit of a miss for them because there's not a heck of a lot else up forward for them to hang their head on. They've tried the other Himmelberg. There's some promise there. We know that they've really struggled for a second competitive tall forward, which is why I think they might play Fogarty. As far as the midfield's concerned, Boat coming back just highlights the fact that Rory Sloan isn't there for Adelaide. And unfortunately, weight of numbers, the better team... You can be creative in your selections, but you can't possibly pick Adelaide Pick Adelaide to beat Port Adelaide, especially with last week's derby in your memories, burning in your memory, where the more powerful side, regardless of a little bit of early season form, should win out. As West Coast lauded it over Fremantle, I expect Port to do the same over Adelaide to the tune of 47 points. Yeah, so do I. Not by quite that much, but I think reasonably comfortably in the end. A couple of reasons for that. I think they will have been suitably stung by not only the loss to Brisbane, but the uh, ensuing discussion about them being a flat-track bully. That is the most despised tag in any football club's vocabulary these days, and they were copying it after losing that game up at the Gabba. 
Um, the other big one is the, uh, well, this is such a clash for pride in the city of churches. Uh, this is showdown number 49. What do you reckon the overall scoreline is, Finey? Just have a quick guess. I would say Adelaide 26, Port Adelaide 22. It is Adelaide 24, Port Adelaide 24. There you go. Whoever wins this game... Hey. Unless it's a draw, we'll get bragging rights for leading that wedger. So another motivation for Port to win. Yeah, same as Finey. They are clearly the better side. I'm, and I'm starting to worry a bit about where Adelaide is headed because a few of those early season indicators really starting to wane quite dramatically. That was a pretty horrible performance last week. I'm not sure they can recover quickly enough to beat a team as good as Port Adelaide. Port, for me, by a margin of 32 points. That's Saturday dealt with. Let's talk about the three games on Sunday. First game on Sunday afternoon, 1.10pm at the MCG. It is a rematch of the 2015 Grand final, the 1991 grand final, the 1992 qualifying final, etc., etc. Um, really looking forward to this game. I'm not sure why. It's just something about these two teams I think often makes for interesting football matches. Uh, Hawthorne belted last week. Uh, you'd think any team coached by Alistair Clarkson has to respond in a meaningful fashion. West Coast. Looking terrific the longer that derby win over Fremantle went. Stats Insider tell us that this match pits the league's fourth worst points per game defence up against one of the best attacks. That's ominous. In fact, the Eagles are ranked second in efficiency insofar as both turning inside 50s into scoring shots as well as generating marks within the 50. Speaking of which, Hawthorne has surrendered 108 marks inside 50 this season to opponents, which is a number they share with North Melbourne as the worst in the league. That is very ominous, given the sort of weaponry the Eagles have up forward. West Coast, though, have lost their last five games straight in Victoria, though they have beaten the Hawks in each of their last two games in the Garden State. What are either side thinking about in terms of selection here, Mark? Well, West Coast would love to be able to recall the likes of Shannon Hearn or McGovern or Barras, but they're not yet fit. So no change for the West Coast Eagles. Whereas Hawthorne, who had a couple of big outs last week with Wingard and O'Meara, should expect both of them, I think, to be back in the team this week. Expect the first gamer, Jacker, uh, to be omitted. I'd you know, he only had a couple of possessions, so I don't think he's going to hold his spot, Emerson Jacker. And probably Finn McGuinness to be squeezed out as well. Well, don't West Coast Eagles want to know who's the big birds of the big game? Well, these are the two big birds, the Eagles and the Hawks, and I think that they will be able to overcome a chastened Hawthorne. As you said, no team coach by Alistair Clarkson is just going to sit back and cop what they dished out last week and say that that was anywhere near acceptable. So they'll be stung and be vastly improved with the returns of O'Meara and Wingard. West Coast have been disappointing on the road this season, but here's a chance to get 
at least some cont- continuity in terms of wins going after that good victory over Fremantle. They should be able to butter up for no other reason than that forward line bristles with options and goal-kicking power. I think Kennedy's playing in you know, great form given his twilight years. We know Darling's always a danger and they can decide exactly how to use Oscar Allen. They used him back last week because of a paucity of tall defenders. Against Hawthorne, it's not as pressing a case because we know that they only have a single big forward in Lewis and even he remains to be a a proven commodity. So they might go the big three up front, but whichever way they play it, too much firepower, West Coast by 31 points. Uh, Well, the Stats Insider figures on this game have really swayed me. I mean, I probably would have tipped this way anyway, but uh, gee, those numbers defensively for the Hawks look terrible. And uh, West Coast just so potent in attack with so many scoring options. I don't know how Hawthorne's defence is going to handle them, to be honest. And I think the other significant thing here is the venue, because as ordinary as the Eagles have been in Victoria of late, the MCG, and this is pretty significant, Optus Stadium having the same dimensions as the MCG, I think that really has helped them play on the G. You have a look at their record there. They've lost their last two, but one of them a final against Geelong. In fact, they haven't played on the MCG since September 2019, but that was only by 20 points. The game before that, they lost to the eventual Premier Richmond by only six points, and they won their previous five clashes on the MCG, one of them, of course, a grand final in 2018. So it's a ground they don't mind playing on it well. I think they can really exploit that. Um, yeah, you always expect a side coach by Alistair Clarkson to respond strongly to a rare shocker, and that's what that performance against St Kilda absolutely was. But the Eagles definitely have their, uh, is it wedge? Yeah, they'll have their wedge tails up after that big win over their local rival. I think they will get a bit more confidence after winning this one as well. I'm going for West Coast by 20 points. Let's talk about the uh, lunchtime offering on the Sunday menu. Well, this is a very interesting matchup too. Marvel Stadium, 3.20pm. It is the Western Bulldogs up against Carlton. Of course, the Doggies tasting defeat for the first time this season last week against Richmond, overpowered in that second half. And the Blues with uh, probably their best performance of the season in a good come-from-behind win against Essendon. They were 21 points down at one stage in the first half of that game and really produced the goods when it counted. So they'll be reasonably buoyed by that and certainly go in to this game against the Doggies with plenty of hope. Uh, despite their loss to Richmond, Stats Insider tell us, the Bulldogs are still flag favourites according to the Futures model, while Carlton's weekend win raises them to a 37% chance of playing finals this season. Now, a quick note on respective spearheads, Aaron Norton and Harry Mackay, as there's an argument you could be looking at two potential All-Australians in this game. Both are ranked top three for total marks inside 50, and both are ranked top 10 for total contested marks. Both lead their clubs to total scoring shots, while both are ranked top 10 in the league for total score involvements. 
Both are also operating at personal career highs for tackles inside 50. So doing some fine work defensively as well as offensively. Norton and Mackay certainly shaping as two keys to this result, Finey. Uh, what are we looking at in selection terms here? I reckon this is the game that's going to be most closely looked at at the selection table. Do the Western Bulldogs bring in Jamari Eugle Hagen? He was in an emergency last week. Everybody's waiting for the debut of this precocious young talent. Maybe not, because Tim English has to come back and Josh Shackey will certainly miss out. And they might just go with that combination of English and Martin and leave the forward line tours as Bruce and Norton for the time being, certainly having lost last week. So maybe call your checks for another week. I wouldn't be surprised if Cody Wakeman, remember Cody's first goal in league football? Well, he's been performing pretty well at VFL level. So keep an eye on whether or not Cody Wakeman can force his way in. Riley West might be under pressure. As for Carlton, that one against Essendon was full of merit, given that at the selection table, they couldn't consider Zach Williams or Mark Murphy. They were considered mighty big outs. Well, both are available this week and they will return. One of them, certainly, uh, both of them to come into the side, but none of neither of them a natural replacement for Mitch McGovern, who comes out after sustaining a late hamstring injury in the win over Essendon. So do we see Tom DeConning return to the side for the first time this year? I say yes. They may retain Pitney, but uh, he could just go straight into the ruck. I think they'll keep Pitney and use DeConning up forward to replace Mitch McGovern. Well, Carlton, look, you've got to give them credit last week. They brought in some lesser-known types, Luke Parks and Matthew Owies, and didn't he perform well kicking three goals? He was a menace up forward. They come up against Sterner opposition this week on the rebound, having tasted defeat for the first time, we know, last week, the Western Bulldogs. And you still have to defer, even without Josh Dunkley, to Western Bulldogs, heavy midfield. Bontempelli leads the charge. McRae gets the numbers. Hunter's never shy getting 30-plus possessions in a game. Tomlinson has proved a success as an outside mid. Inside, most of the work done by Liberatore. Bailey Smith adds to the punishment of opposition teams when it comes to midfield. And that sort of level of depth and rotation options, I think, is too much for Carlton, albeit the wonderful form of Sam Walsh. Cripps needs to lift. Maybe they get something out of Williams in the mids. I think Murphy plays mainly forward, but no, too much midfield strength, too much pride on the line, and a big season starts to unravel if they lose to Carlton. Bulldogs by 27. Yeah, I think the midfield is the key for me, as it will be in most games involving the Bulldogs. Look, um, Sam Walsh, unbelievable game from him against the Bombers, and Patrick Cripps didn't start that well, but gee, finished strongly. But beyond that, yeah, they've got some... I mean, Ed Kerno's always a trier, isn't he? But you're talking about a different league of midfield opposition to what Essendon world out last week when you're talking about the Bulldogs, even without a Josh Dunkley. Uh, a couple of other things. The Bulldogs have certainly had it over the Blues in recent times. They've won six of the last eight clashes. Although, interestingly, the Blues have won two of the last three. Uh, smashed them up at Carrara last year and are really 
convincing 44-point win the last time they played at this venue back in early 2019. That said, Carlton's record under uh, the roof isn't great at all. In fact, they have lost four of their last five games at Docklands and the sole victory in that time coming early of this season back in round three against a pretty insipid Fremantle. So I'm not sure how much you read into that one. Look, I was pretty impressed with the Blues last week. Uh, I think they're a more resilient outfit than they've been in the past couple of years. But I just don't think they're good enough talent-wise to match it with the Doggies here, particularly where games are uh, inevitably decided at the short goal-to-goal arena that is Marvel Stadium. And uh, talking about the midfield there, I don't think Carlton has the armoury to match the Doggies there at all. And I think that's why the Bulldogs will win. I'm going for the Western Bulldogs in this one by 24 points, which leaves one game to complete round eight. Well, we've had a venue change in this game and uh, it doesn't come a lot more significant in terms of venue switches than this one because originally scheduled for Optus Stadium in Perth, Of course, uh, COVID flaring up over in WA. So the game has been transferred to the other side of the continent, as far away from Perth as you can get, in fact, in terms of AFL venues. This game now at the Gabba and is between Brisbane and Fremantle, 4.40pm Sunday afternoon, Eastern Standard Time. According to Stats Insider's scheduled difficulty model, the Lions have the league's easiest draw going forward, helped by the fact that between last week and mid-June, they will travel outside of Queensland just once. That's pretty handy work if you can get it. Despite Fremantle's big loss to the Eagles, the Dockers still have the league's ninth strongest probability of making finals with a near 38% chance. It is worth noting, however, that since 2016... Fremantle has lost 45 of its 55 games against top eight opponents, uh, which is exactly what I was thinking when I was poring over the ladder yesterday, finding that Frio um, absolutely tend to win the games they should, which tend to be at home, and they tend to inevitably lose against decent quality opposition. That Brisbane certainly is very impressive in their defeat of Port Adelaide last week, also at home. Uh, What are we looking at in terms of team selection for this game? Well, Darcy Gardner comes back for Brisbane. He's a very important part of their defensive setup after a week off with concussion, with young Madden to be the unlucky player to miss out. Well, while for Fremantle, their tall defender woes continue with the news Joel Hamling has had a setback and he was due back in the next week or so. Don't expect to see him for now weeks, if not months. Might miss the entire season. They also lose, after injury last week, tallest defenders Hughes and Chapman. So expect the sub last week, Taylor Duman, to start, Taylor Duman to start off shoring up the defence. He is quite a tall type. And... They may bring in Stefan Giro, who had a very good game in the waffle as well, but they are certainly clutching at straws in a manner, trying to, you know, keep uh, that 
defence working. Great opportunity, that means, for the likes of Danaher and Hipwood to really get their teeth stuck into a big game. Could be a breakout game. In terms of goals, I think Danaher's been pretty good for the Brisbane Lions, but he hasn't got that big bag yet. Here's an opportunity. This could be the week. All in all, you know, the venue change says it all, doesn't it? You could have entertained Fremantle at home. You cannot entertain them all the way across the Nullarbor and some playing against Brisbane in Brisbane. It's unfortunate for Frio, who, of course, having played the Derby last week, would have had that rare block of three home games. So they don't get that. They get Brisbane bristling after a big win over Port Adelaide. It's times and margins only for this one, Rowan. And the margin? Brisbane by 51. Yeah, well, that's a big margin. Uh, It's hard to think it's not going to be a comfortable win for the Lions, though. That was a really, really impressive performance last week against Port Adelaide. It's interesting with the venue here. uh, Freo have actually played at the Gabba just once in the last four years, and that was against Brisbane last season in round two. And they had only a narrow defeat, admittedly, by... 12 points in that one. Um, Frio did win a string of games against the Lions when everyone was beating the Lions, but since they've come good, in fact, their last win over Brisbane was back in 2016. Yeah, look, I I, I thought Brisbane might have really turned a corner last week. That was a pretty significant win for me against Port. Um, Tough opposition, and they were really hard at it. We tend to think of Brisbane as being a you know, an entertaining sort of ball-carrying side, but they really got their hands dirty as well last week, and that impressed me probably the most about that win over the Port Adelaide Power. So up against Fremantle, gee, you'd expect them to do it pretty easily. Uh, I'm not going for 50-odd points in the margin terms, but I am going for something relatively comfortable. I'm going for Brisbane by 36 points. That is round eight previewed. We have but one segment left on this show, and that's the one we spend all week feverishly anticipating. Let's do it. Fantastic footy flashbacks. You're pumped for this, Finey? I think I'm looking forward to this segment more than anything else in my week these days. Yeah, I do enjoy this. I've enjoyed a lot. All right. Well, I'm going with a pretty well-known footy flashback this week, but certainly an enjoyable one and certainly worth reliving yet again. The year is 1976. The venue is Princes Park. The teams are Carlton and North Melbourne. Where am I headed with this? You should have worked it out by now. I'm headed for Malcolm Blake. The star from South Australia, having come across to Arden Street the previous season, already playing some pretty decent footy. But this was a game where I think anyone who remained unconvinced as to the level of his ability quickly had a rethink after what Blighty did in this game. Yep, you've seen the kick. One of the longest, straightest, highest kicks ever post-Siren to win a game of football. But one of the reasons I wanted to use this um, 
episode this week is because Malcolm Blight's heroics in this game were far from confined to just one kick. This was a game in which Carlton led North Melbourne the entire day. I think the Roos had only six goals on the board at three-quarter time. Carlton cruising, still up by 15, 14, 13 points um, as time ticked close to time on. Malcolm Blight uh, had a relatively quiet afternoon, only kicked the two goals to that stage. Well, he was about to explode. He kicked the final three goals of this game. And forget the last one. The one before that was a banana kick threaded from the boundary line in front of the jeering Carlton supporters. And the one before that was kicked from nearly as far out as the famous match winner. And it was an incredible five or seven minute burst of football from Blighty, brilliantly described by the great commentary duo of Mike Williamson and Lou Richards. And we've got a little package here of Malcolm Blight's heroic final term that day at Prince's Park, 5th of June, 1976. Let's have a listen. Ball up on that uh, half-forward line, about 80 metres out from the Carlton goal. They're starting to look steady again, Carlton. Knocked out by Keenan, grabbed by Melrose, a hand pass over to Hick. Hick's going to have a bounce. He couldn't quite make up his mind that time. He still can't make up his mind. He's bouncing that pretty awkward as he drives the ball up towards Blight and to McLaurin. A bit yes. of a mark to Blight. And about this Blight, when he gets his hands to it, they're certainly sticky. He's taken 10 marks for the day. We wait now for, um, for Blight to have his shot from about 70 metres out from goal. The kick is a good one, I'd say. That's Blight's third goal, and North Melbourne got a nine goals, 15. 69 points, the Carlton 11, 10, 76. 25 minutes of the final quarter gone. Seven points the difference. Oh, In favour of Carlton this time for the Kangaroos. Two comes Melrose. Melrose goes to the half-forward flank. He's looking for Chisnell. Chisnell pushes the ball in front of him. He's well shepherded. Chisnell into the forward zone. Blight is going for minutes gone and Blight would be 40 metres out but he's on a very very difficult angle it's on its way it's a banana kick it's close up towards the wing position on the outer side. Pennell knocks the ball clear, but in comes Gumbelin. Gumbelin tries a hand pass. It's picked up here by Dawson. Dawson up North Melbourne, up towards centre-half forward. There's no mark yes. That's Malcolm Blight once again. Malcolm Blight has got the ball at centre-half forward. 28 minutes gone. The crowd's gone mad. There's the siren. The siren's gone. No, Blight will have to take his kick. Now Blight would have to kick this. To kick at 85 90 meters, but he's going to have a kick, all right. It's not over yet, not over yet. What drama here at Prince's Park? 
Malcolm Blyde, it's a big kick. must be the most famous kick in football. How far did Mike Williamson say he'd have to go? Oh, I'd have to kick it 95 metres. <laughs> Good on you, Mike. Always one for uh, a little bit of mayo. You know what I loved about that kick, Rowan? What? That ball went through post height or even just above the post, but it plummeted very quickly thereafter and it actually sort of dropped two or three rows behind the fence. So it was... Quite an amazing torpedo punch. Uh, incredible kick. It's one of the highest kicks I think I've ever seen in my life. Certainly went above post high. Uh, I think the distance was measured in officially, eventually, at something like 65 metres. Absolutely massive kick. But those first two goals in their own way weren't uh, far short of it. So it was just an incredible burst of footy from Blighty. I can remember... I don't know why I didn't go to the Essendon game that day, but I do remember listening to this on the radio at home. Um, and amazing finish. Of course, you could catch the round-the-ground scores and hearing what was going on there, I quickly switched to the, the Carlton North game and heard the end of it called live. Incredible stuff. And just as a little postscript, Blighty's heroics against Carlton that year didn't finish there because these two teams would meet in the preliminary final out at Waverley, a game I attended. And in fact, if you ever watched the last quarter of the 1976 preliminary final, you can see me finding. I was sitting right up against the um, one of the trainers' dugouts on the side opposite the TV cameras. I don't know why, but I remember that I was wearing this multicoloured jumper. It was like a crow's jumper, actually. Um, and there's a moment where the ball goes out of bounds right in front of it, and I'm furiously waving to the camera. So anytime that comes on, I can say hello to myself as a precocious 11-year-old. But anyway, I digress. This was a similar thriller, a much lower scoring affair, but Malcolm Blight saved North Melbourne, marking on the goal line as Carlton feverishly attempted to level the scores the siren going seconds later and the Roos winning the preliminary final over a shattered Carlton by one point. Of course, they've gone and lose the grand final to Hawthorne the following week. But there you have it. One of the most famous moments in footy history. Malcolm Blight wins the day at Princes Park 1976. All right, Finey, you're going to top that. What have you got in your locker this week? Well, I've got a swan song of sorts. A demon song. Round 22, 1980, the final game of Carl Dittrich, as recalled on the news that night. Carl went out as he sort of started league football, making headlines, of course. His first game was 1963, round one for St Kilda. And he made headlines that day, the big blonde bombshell taking on the demons, thought to be best on ground. Well, after a sort of checkered career in terms of brilliance and tribunal appearances, his demons, who he captain coached in 1980, took on Collingwood. 
at the MCG and Big Carl went out swinging. So here's a little bit of, well, highlights of the game, some Carl Dittrich moments and fondly remembered also with that clipped accent that we used to have in the nightly news report. Let's have a listen. After 285 BFL games over 16 years, Big Carl Dittrich bowed out of the game. He went like he came, with a performance to be remembered. It might not have been pretty football, but it was football Big Carl style, and stirred both Melbourne supporters and the whole Collingwood team. It also proved to be infectious. The back is pick and takes it off the pack. It's a hand pass out. Oh, there's another Collingwood player now. And Dittrich got off gets the ball up towards Young, who got one for his corner that time. Aitken tries to grab the mark. He finally taps it out. The Young, Young's clear. Oh, he's pushed in the back, firstly, by Giles. A snap by goal. He's put it through. A beautiful bit of play. And that's what you call a goal under pressure. Next bit comes down towards Kiki. Can't get his hands crossed. There's Dacos falling on top of the ball. Breaks clear of the pack. Had a ton of time to do that. Snap by goal. I think he might have put it through. He has. Think. Ray Shaw. Over towards Young, back towards Shaw, good handball, and the skipper got. Gordon's at the back. Gordon goes for the punch, back it goes to Young. He backs back into trouble, now he's out of it. Tries to snap for the goal, he's put it through, a magnificent goal by Young. Great goal. Looked as though he's in all the trouble about the place. Well, there you go. Big Carl, a colourful career. In fact, he got reported on three, time, three, three times during that game. Kevin Morris seemed to be the subject of most of his attention, a couple of reports there. But amazingly, went to the tribunal, assured all in attendance that he was not going to play league football anymore and got let off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it didn't work for Alistair Lynch, did it? They still got a 10-game suspension after the 2004 grand final. I can't ever hear the name Carl Dittrich, unfortunately, without remembering that story about him uh, when he was captain coach of Melbourne chasing the late Trevor Grant of the age down a corridor of Waverley naked um, because he'd done the press conference with a towel wrapped around him and got so pissed off with Trevor, whose nickname was Short Ass, that he chased him out of the room and down the corridor and in the process the towel came off. And he was, <laughs> there he was, chasing a journo down the corridors of Waverley in the nutty. Um, the, the other intriguing thing about Big Carl Finey is that uh, he had two stints each at St Kilda and Melbourne. Of course, the bulk of his career at St Kilda went to Melbourne um, as uh, skipper 73-4-5, went back to St Kilda for 76-7-8, and eight, and then back to Melbourne again. Well, what happened there? Well... The first was under the 10-year rule and Melbourne were able to seduce him with some money. He came back to St Kilda and was part of that very strong team in 1978, including that infamous game at Moorabbin against your Bombers. But that would be his last year at St Kilda. There always was sort of trouble with St Kilda's committee and I guess... It was a love-hate relationship, and he ended up back at Melbourne for his final two seasons as captain coach, where he was much loved, of course, wearing that famous big white bandana. But you know what is one of the common misconceptions about footy trivia, amongst footy trivia buffs, Rowan? What would that be? 
that he is the only player in the history of the game to have played for Club A, gone to Club B, gone back to Club A and finished with Club B. Do you know that there's one other player that did that? And who would that be? His name was Pat Leahy and he played for Geelong five, oh, pardon me, five games in 1939, reappeared for South Melbourne 11 games in 43, went back to Geelong for 15 games in 44 and finished up with a single game for South Melbourne in 1945. Well, there you go. Fascinating stuff. I certainly wasn't privy to that information. Uh, what was the name? Leahy, was it? Leahy. Yeah, Leahy. Ah, no, like the Trailer Park supervisor in Trailer Park Boys. Uh, favorite. <laughs> really? Uh, Mr. Leahy, yeah, the permanently drunk trailer park supervisor who gets around with the shirtless gigolo Randy who eats too many cheeseburgers. Great show, Trailer Park Boys, if you haven't caught it. Anyway, time for us to wrap up here. Hope you enjoyed those fantastic footy flashbacks. Hope you enjoyed the whole show. Uh, we certainly enjoy your support as we enjoy the support of our sponsors, Finey. Big plug. Well, good segue, your cheeseburger-eating trailer park boy would have had no problems keeping his addiction going at Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. You can't blame anybody for having a cheeseburger addiction there. And trailer park, no, I don't think he would have been in the market for a West Point property home. I think they were a little bit above his status. So the best homes, West Point properties, Nick Spartel's, but his cheeseburger addiction, no problems at Andrews. Thanks again also to Stats Insider, a sports and data-driven industry leader providing model projections and analysis for more than 15 sports across the world. They've got a fantastic website, some great independent sports writing on there as well. So check it out. It's all free to use, statsinsider.com.au. We thank you, our audience, for your support. You can support us on the supporter page at Acast, wherever you're listening to this podcast, or you can jump on footyology.com.au and find a link to Patreon. And for $7 Australian per month, you can become an official Footyology patron. And let me assure you that money goes to a very good cause, i.e. helping sustain this little operation. Thanks for listening. Make sure you tune in live on Twitter or Facebook on Friday night following the big Richmond Geelong game for Footyology Final Siren. And in terms of the podcast, we'll be back on Sunday evening to wrap up what should be a fascinating round eight. We'll see you then. Listener.